Well, you know, our theme this year, what's our theme this year? Supernatural surprise is the way we've actually put it. And I keep getting uh, emails from folks all the time about how that has resonated with them. I got one just yesterday, another testimony about the supernatural surprise God has brought. And I'm, thri- I'm thrilled by all of them. Please keep those coming. Uh, Becky and I, I don't know if you would say the surprise we had this week was supernatural. I would say it was definitely unexpected. Um, and what happened was she had been in New York uh, working at what she does there and got home Wednesday evening late and we got all uh, tucked in bed and at our house we sleep with two dogs in the bed. Okay, it's a little crowded but we do. Uh, We sleep with two dogs in the bed and we have a door um, from our master bedroom into the porch on the outside, a very small backyard. We downsized about three years ago, which is a great thing, by the way. And so we, um, uh, we, the, the dogs are trained to ring a little bell that's hanging from the door when they have to go out, and that's a great thing also. And so somehow I didn't hear the, that one signal, and Becky did, and she let the, the uh, one dog out. It's a, she's a golden doodle, about 30 pounds, and she let her out. And um, am I boring you with this story yet? Because you know it's going somewhere, right? And so, um, anyway, um, all of a sudden, both of us raised up in the bed because of an overwhelming, unbelievable smell of a skunk. Now, folks, let's talk about this. Um, You've driven through a neighborhood and smelled a skunk smell, but have you ever been within 10 feet of that? It is so, the, the pungency of it, it it literally becomes a different smell that you go, that's not what I smell when I just drive through a neighborhood and, sp- and smell a skunk. This is different. And so we both raised up in the bed and said, my goodness, what is that? And, and it was so strong. We thought it might be a skunk, but that's just really strong. And then I could hear the dog kind of scratching on the door needing to come in. And so I opened the door. And that dog, who's capable of, of flying, she's really very good, she flew from the door into our bed, into our bed. Her ears were soaked. Her beard was soaked. Her neck was soaked in skunk spray. In our bed <laughs> at 2 o'clock in the morning. And so... Which began, you know, and now we're just, we are absolutely, you know, you're trying to wake up and you cannot believe the smell is unbelievable. And so there's this big puddle of something wet on my side of the bed and Becky wonders if I had a problem. And, <laughs> and so finally we figured out, no, what's coming from her it was in her mouth. It was really awful. We tried to examine her. She'd been bit. What has happened? So we, you know, got online quickly and found a 24-hour vet not too far from us. And we, so we, you know, we bundle her up and put her in the car. Now our car smells <laughs> like this. And, and, and we uh, get her to the vet and we walk in and everybody that's in the, you know, they, the vet, they did not appreciate us coming uh, much. So we walk in and they didn't have a whole lot to do except, you know, they treated her eyes and gave us this list of things we need to go get with hydrogen peroxide and vinegar and whatever else, four or five things. That, and we said, okay, now we've got to go to Walmart in the middle of the night. Anybody ever been to Walmart in the middle of the night? Like 2.30 in the morning. So we walk into Walmart. <clears throat> are you bored yet? We walk into Walmart. Becky and I both are reeking. 
And we walk and we say, okay, let's divide and conquer. You go that way, you get these three items, and I'll go this way, and I'll get these two items. And about the time we walk in, and the cashiers go, ooh, what is that? And we kind of looked at each other and finally went, it's us. So it was, it was really bad. And so then we finally get home. We bathe the dog about four times and uh, get to bed about, I don't know, four o'clock finally. And all I can tell you is, because you're wondering why I'm telling you this story, my wife and my kids said, how long is it going to take you to work this story into a sermon? And I said, I'll do it this Sunday. I may have to shoehorn it in there, but I'll get in there somehow. This has nothing to do with my message whatsoever. Just want you to know what happened at the Smith household this week and that if you have a problem with the skunk, we've got the concoction that can fix it for you and take care of it. Now, I will tell you, we had to spend several hundred dollars to have the house fumigated on Friday and the car, so it was an expensive little uh, venture, and so we're still, so just don't come too close to us today. And so Becky said to me yesterday, she was, how are you going to work this into a message? Isn't there something in the Bible about the stench of death or the stench? Yeah. But all I can think of is, you know, that skunk has a, that's a weapon. So I could preach on the weapons of our warfare. Preach on, you know, no weapon formed against us shall prosper and bring the skunk, you know, here and, you know, talk about all that. And then she left my little office at home and walked back in. She was, by the way, she said, all of my clothes stink, so I have to go shopping and find something new to wear to church on Sunday. And all the women said. Okay, turn to your neighbor and say, that had nothing to do with nothing in this service. So pray for us at our house. We're still recovering from everything. Hallelujah. Church, the Lord is good. And he's faithful to us, is he not? I want to, uh, I know I've just got a few minutes here, and I'm going to try to do it uh, quickly because we've had so much in this service, but it's been so delightful. All the music has been great. Thank you, Pastor Brent. And Pastor Brent, I want to say I know that the... uh, success of that event yesterday was because of your incredible work and I applaud you and I thank you for your over and above and beyond work that you do here in this house. Amazing. You know I love you. I want to return to a theme that I touched on just over a year ago. You may remember it, you may not. At that time I made only a quick reference to it um, within the course of a message but I want to draw it out a bit more today, and I have a reason for doing so. I, I do so out of the sensitivity of my, my own heart to many in this fellowship that I know are experiencing a unique season in your lives. Uh, I know it because you've shared it with me. And, um, and I, just, I just have to say again, uh, maybe I say it not often enough, maybe I say it too often. You know, Becky and I, and I've, we've been here a long time, but we love this fellowship. Oh, how we love this church. When someone new comes along like Dr. J and his family and we get the privilege of talking about you and as we talk about you, images of your faces come into our mind and how much we love you and we've done life with you for 40 years and uh, this is not a job to us. This is a calling and this is a privilege for us and we are so privileged to serve in this capacity because we love you so much. Um, So I I want you to be encouraged today in your faith. I also... um, I want us to be encouraged to be faithful and consistent in our walk with God because I know how easy it is to become discouraged. Has anybody felt any discouragement in any time recently? You know, that's too many hands going up. So it's always helped to have someone give you an encouraging word. I want to set this up this way. 
I grew up in a classical Pentecostal environment, as did many of you, and there were simply certain ideas uh, in the world in which I grew up, ways of thinking that were just part of the culture. Many of them, as we see now, could not be substantiated biblically, but nonetheless, they were just part of the culture. And because they were ingrained into the culture, many of us uh, just sort of accepted them as the normal or the right way of thinking. Um, let me give you an example of one, and some of you will be surprised, you younger ones will be surprised at this because it really flies in the face of, of how you, you view the world today and life today. But this is, you know, my parents were pastors all my life, and honestly, they were great pastors um, and did such a wonderful job. But to their generation, their generation of pastors and the church leaders that I was exposed to through my folks, there was a, a, a I don't know that anybody came out and said this out loud, but it was clearly evident in the culture, and that is this, that outward appearances were important. Outward appearances were extremely important. Now, I know many of you, particularly young ones, are going to cringe at that idea because the new generation has brought on a completely different kind of thinking. I think our generation finally found that verse in 1 Samuel 16 that says, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks upon the, on the heart. My folks... They really truly served their day and their generation well. But there was this pervasive mentality in the church leadership that seemed to, um, I'm not saying this very well, almost subliminally uh, communicate this idea that if you were able somehow to make the exteriors of your life look right, if you smelled right, and if you were be right, if you were together on what people saw, that somehow that was the best indication that everything was well on the inside of you, that you had it together inside, that somehow the outward was simply an expression of how together or, how, or, or your spiritual walk on the inside of you. You know, women got the worst end of that deal. Uh, you know, women, your dresses had to be excessively modest. And when I say excessive, I'm all for modesty, absolutely, but, but excessively modest, but the dress had to go from here to here, okay? And um, nothing too fl flashy. Uh, it was a different set of rules for the guys. Guys, you could be as flashy as you wanted as long as you had brill cream in your hair. You know, a little dabble, do you? Um, I'm not endorsing immodest. I'm not opposed to hair product. I'm just saying that externals were elevated to the point of being the best indication that the internals were just fine. And I'm glad that we're not still in that place. Because here's, here was the fallacy of it in my way of thinking. Holiness, which was preached on a lot, was defined by how you looked and not how you lived according to the word of the Lord. Because if you looked right on the outside, everything must be right on the inside. You know, another example, my, my wonderful dad, loving, gentle-spirited father, but not having my shoes shined on Saturday night in preparation for the Lord's Day on Sunday morning was punishable by law. I'm all for bringing your best. I really am. I'm all for presenting yourself well and all that. But I just cannot believe that that is the path, the exteriors is the path to guaranteeing that all is well within your soul. There were other pervasive mentalities in the church that were communicated subliminally. Um, and I want to be quick to say, lest you think I'm, particularly you old-timers, thinking that I'm, I'm uh, trashing on the good old days. I'm not. Uh, not everything was bad. In fact, there was lots and lots and lots of good. In fact, even many things that I miss today, 
that we don't see as much today as we did back in the good old days. Let me give you an example. Reverence for the house of God. Wow. Reverence for the house of God. When I was a kid, we knew what it was to respect the house of the Lord. We respected the pulpit. We knew the man standing behind it, the woman standing behind it was flawed, but we respected what the word of the Lord and the anointing of the Lord upon their life. But, re- but reverence for the house of the Lord. No one sat on their device while the preacher was preaching. Just go ahead and look down your row right now. Cast a little judgment. That's all right. The reason no one sat on the devices, we didn't have devices back then. We didn't even have televisions back then. One of the other mentalities that was just somewhat of an unwritten law that you figured out as a child was communicated by the, um, you picked it up by the composite of things that you heard people say in the church. And it was this. If you were really... um, if you're really going to please the Lord, then you had to be doing spiritual things to please the Lord. That was the only way that you could be found pleasing to the Lord. Spiritual things included being in church, lifting your hands in worship, reading your Bible, praying, witnessing to the unsaved, going to revival services. But anything that you were doing outside of that, now again, nobody said this. It just was sort of in the atmosphere. It was in the air. You just picked it up. Anything you did outside of spiritual things and those things that were obviously and clearly spiritual, that God was somehow just tolerating that until you got back to the important stuff. That, that's, I mean, okay, you can go do that for a few minutes, but quickly, quickly get back to do the important stuff. So things like going to the grocery store, pumping gas in your car, playing miniature golf, cleaning the house, eating, which we certainly did plenty of that. You know, any kind of physical activity. Those were okay But the really spiritual people need to hurry and get back to the spiritual stuff. That is if you wanted to be pleasing to the Lord and have his favor and blessing on your life. And coupled somehow with this thinking was the idea that to be a really good Christian and to be close to God, you had to be excited all the time. How many grew up like I did? Raise your hand. You had to be excited all the time. You had to be feeling Certain emotions all the time if you were spiritual or you really weren't sure you were saved unless you were feeling a certain thing all the time. And we believe that. And I know people today who still struggle with those thoughts. Now, please hear this old pastor carefully as I try to bring balance to this idea because I want you to hear me carefully. It is possible. You can allow your heart to grow cold You and I both know people who have. You can become complacent in your spiritual journey. You can lose the simple wonder of your salvation. I'm just so glad Jesus saved me. You can lose that if you lose your gratitude. You can dissipate in your value of stirring up your affections for Christ. Please hear my heart today. But just because... You're not excited at every church service. Just because you're walking through a season that feels very mundane to you, just because you haven't had goose pimples in a long time, is no indication that God is not with you. It's not any indication that his hand is not upon you. It's not an indication that his eye cannot see you. Nor is it an indicator that the days that lie in front of you cannot still be the best days of your life. Just because you've not been 
feeling something in a while. It's no indication that the most fulfilling and enriching days of your life are not ahead of you. Like I said, I was raised in the Pentecostal church, and I am thankful for my heritage, and I wouldn't have wanted it any other way. I love worshiping with spirit-empowered people. I love worshiping with people who aren't ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love hearing a choir sing a great gospel song like we heard this morning. Simple in its message, but Jesus brought me out and turned my life around. I love that. It thrills my soul. I love worshiping with people who aren't ashamed of the gospel and who know how to give themselves with a sense of abandonment to loving Jesus and worshiping him that when they come together as we do here on Beach Street on Sunday morning, we're not ashamed to lift our voices and our hands and be be, uh, uh, encouraged by our worship leaders to say, let's praise the name of Jesus. And people who know what that's all about it and are not ashamed to stand and say, I love the Lord, thankful for what he's done in my life. But our propensity in the Pentecostal church to be emotionally charged has not always been kept in balance because emotions, church, rise and fall, and they cannot be the most trusted component upon which you base your life. If you only feel close to God when you are emotionally stirred, then you, dear one, have failed to truly understand the full dynamic of the faithfulness of God. He is faithful when you are faithless. He has promised to never leave you or forsake you. That's his word to you. He's promised to never leave you or forsake you. He has said, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Now, to this point, I'm a little bit on thin ice here, but I really want you to hear my heart. This entire simple message is born out of love for you. To this point, I was in a group setting in the last few weeks with a very learned man who shared his thoughts and concerns about young people today and how we have brought them up in the church. His indictment was not so much on the young people, really not at all, but rather on those who've been responsible for raising them in the church. And here's what he said, and you measure it for yourself, and you'll have your own reaction, that's fine. He said, I'm concerned that we've raised a generation of young people whose understanding of the church is that they have to be entertained, tantalized, and stirred in a soulish way to feel any connection with God. Inasmuch We've made the truth of the eternal Word of God minimized, if not irrelevant, in their lives. My proof, he said, watch them sit through a boring church service and have no capacity to be still and know that He is God. Watch them have no capacity to worship a sovereign, holy God outside the framework of their emotions. Inasmuch have we really taught them who God is, which begs the deeper question, Do we, the adults, really know who God is if we only worship Him when our emotions are stirred? Now, I hope you've heard my balance in this. I love the excitement of the music. I love the excitement of the worship. But that cannot be the totality of our understanding of the magnitude of how our God is. Because guess what? Monday morning's coming. And you don't get to have this band with you. You don't get to have the choir inspiring you. You don't get to have Gerard and Javon singing their hearts out and Brent 
And there are those other days that does not minimize the magnitude and the power of who a sovereign, holy, almighty God wants to be and is in your life. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 16. Here we're going to see a chapter that was a huge mistake in Abraham's life. You know the story as well as I do. God had promised to Abraham that he and Sarah would give birth to a baby in their latter years, and that child was to be Isaac. But at some point in the journey, they didn't see God doing anything. They, they, they couldn't see it. it was, they were going through years and years and years. They'd had this promise, but they weren't seeing it. And also, they weren't feeling it. They weren't feeling the goose pimples. They weren't feeling that thing that we think we have to feel all the time. The only thing they were feeling was that their biological clock was ticking and working against them. And so, you know what happened. Abraham decided, okay, I'm going to help God out with this. And Sarah was a part of this. I'm going to help God out with this process. And Genesis chapter 16 is their scheme to make God's promise to them work. Since they didn't feel like God was getting after it, they were going to do it for him. They had determined that in God's silence, he was not going to do anything. And Abraham's getting old, Sarah's getting old, so we better see to this ourselves. So Sarah comes up with this bright idea for Abraham to get their Egyptian maid, Hagar, pregnant. And thus, we have the whole problem that not only affected their lives, but it affects us even today. So the child born to Hagar is not Isaac, but rather it is Ishmael, who becomes the father, the birthing of the whole Middle East, as you know. And we still see the conflict in the world today, all because one man, Abraham, wouldn't wait for God to fulfill his promise. Clearly, Genesis 16 is a mistake. It's a big mistake. Genesis 16 is a story of Abraham not waiting for the promise of God. Genesis 16 is the story of Abraham getting anxious because he didn't feel anything. He didn't see what he wanted to see. But because of that, the problems begin. Problems between Hagar and Abraham's wife, Sarah. Problems between Ishmael and the boy who would be born to them, Isaac. Isaac and Ishmael would, would birth nations who would continue to have huge problems down through the ages. And this is a clear reminder to us, to us today, Bethesda, that when we enter into sin, when we move ahead of God and do our own thing, we become blind to consequences, both immediate consequences and long-term consequences, which I'm trying to point out to you today. When we walk right into temptation, we are somehow only able to realize that moment, that second, and our immediacy. It's all we see. We don't see uh, in that moment uh, the ripple effect that will result from our sin. And if I can be blunt about it, it's a very selfish moment. Every time we choose to enter into that which we know is wrong, that which we know is in opposition to a holy God, we don't think of our marriage, we don't think of our children, we don't think of our grandchildren, we can only think of ourselves. It's exactly where we find Abraham in chapter 16. But it's this last verse of this chapter that I think has something to say to you and to me today. Look at it with me, Genesis 16. I'll start with verse 15. So Hagar gave Abraham, Abram a son, and Abram named him Ishmael. 
Abram was 86 years old when Ishmael was born. And so ends chapter 16. Then my guess is if you're looking at an actual print Bible this morning, your Bible probably has a little space before it goes on into chapter 17, verse 1. Chapter 17, verse 1 reads, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Serve me faithfully and live a blameless life. Now, you mathematicians, we ended 16 where he was how old? 86. That last verse, the first verse of 17, he's now. How many years have passed between chapter 16 and 17? 13 years. Interesting, isn't it? Because it's true of us that when we read the Bible, I've done this. I bet you have too. We tend to think when we move into the next chapter, it's just the next day or it's the next week or just it was very soon after what we just read before we because we need to connect all those dots. But in this case, the Bible clearly gives us a time frame which, so we can understand some things. The end of chapter 16, he's 86. The beginning of chapter 17, the very next verse, he's 99. And we have this incredibly important little white space in our Bible where nothing is written. We have no record of what happened. Reading the rest of 17, there are some things that are inferred that help us. We immediately jump into chapter 17. Abraham is 99 years old. The Bible skips 13 years. Nothing is said. Hear me. Nothing is recorded. There are no verses there to memorize. Nothing is there for us at all. But what gets my attention is that a little space between chapter 16 and chapter 17 because it can easily look like nothing to us. We can read that and think of nothing until you realize that chapter 17, when it opens up, it's one of the most important chapters of the whole of the Old Testament. It's possibly one of the most important chapters in the whole of Jewish history. Chapter 17 is the Abrahamic covenant. Chapter 17 is where Abraham not only gets a new name for God, where God declares himself to be God Almighty, El Shaddai. We learn from our, uh, our predecessor, my predecessor, Pastor Dez, what El Shaddai, that name means. It really means the many-breasted one, the one who is able to nourish and succor us. That's how he's describing himself. El Shaddai, the many-breasted one. And this is the first time we see that name in Scripture. But then God tells him he's about to change Abram's name from Abram to Abraham. And Sarai will become Sarah. This is the chapter where God gives the promise of a covenant which would last for thousands and thousands of years. And while this planet that we are seated on today is still in motion right now, God's covenant is still enacted of God giving his blessing upon the people of Abraham. This chapter 17 of Genesis is where it all takes, takes off. This is such an incredibly important chapter of the Old Testament. This chapter is quoted in Hebrews. It's quoted in Romans. It's, it's quoted in Galatians. And here's what gets me. It's at the springboard and jumping point for this most incredible chapter of Abraham's life doesn't come after the notable points of Abraham's life. 
It doesn't follow that moment where he stands before the king of Sodom. Doesn't follow any of the historic moments that we know about of Abraham's life. No, it comes after 13 years of nothing. 13 years of silence, a blank space, and then suddenly he jumps into the most important chapter of his life. How does that happen? And what is God saying to you and to me today? And doesn't it raise the question, what was Abraham doing during those 13 years? What was going on during that time for which we have absolutely no record? And yet, it was preparing him for the greatest chapter of his life and the fulfillment of a promise over his life. Let me just break it down for you as I see it. I recognize that what I'm giving you now is conjecture, but what I'm giving you is greatly inferred by reading the rest of the chapter 17. What we do know is this, clearly from the rest of the chapter, Abraham was raising Ishmael. Abraham was being a dad to Ishmael. Therefore, I think we can safely assume what he was doing. I think he was changing diapers. I think he was washing baby bottles. I think he was teaching him science. I think he was playing pitch and catch with him. I think he was throwing him a bar mitzvah. I think he was reading the Torah to this boy. I think he was teaching the boy how to walk, teaching Hebrew to the young lad. Can I just be honest with you about what I truly believe this 13-year period of time is? I think it was Abraham managing a mistake that he wished would have never happened. Anyone here ever wish you could undo some part of your life? Anybody wish you had a command Z on yesterday? I see this in Scripture as Abraham taking a mistake, something he had blown, and for the next 13 years, he's taking responsibility and managing his responsibility of a bad decision. And you and I end up with no verses at all about it. I believe what we see is a man who wished he could take back a chapter of his life. However, what we see him doing is being faithful in mundane duties of life that no one is clapping for and no one is saying amen to and no one is cheering him on. He's just doing what he's supposed to do. And here's what I want all of us to see today. That was the launch pad for God taking him into what is the most important chapter of his life. Hear it today, church. He was raising a boy and fixing a mistake that he had made rather than just putting it off to the side. Let me ask you this. When you were reading your immersed Bible this past week, was anyone cheering you on? Was anyone applauding for you? What you were doing quietly on your own, was, was anyone saying, yes, yes, go, go, go? Did anyone send you a thank you card for showing up at prayer service last Sunday night? Do you know what the white space in your Bible between chapter 16 and chapter 17 is? It, it's doing the stuff that nobody applauds you for. It's being faithful in things where no one is there to cheer you on. It is there, it's the stuff where nobody sees you except God sees you. And God takes note of what you're doing. God honors those moments of your life. And I would say this. Do you want to see God take you to the greatest chapter of your life? 
then do the things he has asked you to do where nobody else sees what you're doing. Can you sing when you don't have a microphone in your hand? Can you sing when there's no one in front of you but the only audience you have is God himself? Dear friend, are you finding yourself today caught between chapter 16 and chapter 17? What's the Lord asking of you in this season of your life? And what are you doing about it? What are you doing about it? Are you holding back because it feels mundane? It feels too ordinary. It feels too blasé. It feels too lacking in some sort of something you think you're supposed to feel because you have grander visions of a ministry that yields excessive fruit and right now it looks like the place of small fruit for you. I want to remind you the simple part of this message today. Here's what I've come to say to you. It is simply this, church. God honors faithfulness. Say it with me, church. God honors. Come on, one more time. God honors women and men who are simply faithful to his word and faithful to the distinctive voice, his distinctive voice to them. And their faithfulness to God is not predicated upon man's approval as much as we love that and enjoy that and like that. Or, or, or they, man may not, even be, may not even notice what you're doing. When you get up faithfully, maybe even in the dark, and you go to that job that you don't particularly enjoy, but you give it your best effort. You work as unto the Lord. God honors you for doing that. Look at Abraham. He, he's, he's not only doing what he's supposed to be doing as a father, he's managing a situation that he probably wished had never happened. It was not the best of circumstances. And yet he is where he is, and he makes the determination to be faithful in the midst of less than perfect circumstances. Being faithful in the midst of less than. Do you understand less than perfect circumstances? Hudson Taylor, one of the greatest British missionaries to China, said these words. A little thing is a little thing. Profound, isn't it? But faithfulness in a little thing is a big thing. Say that with me. A little thing. It's called integrity. And God's watching. He's looking for it. He's looking for it in me. He's looking for it in you. You know what the chapter 16, 17 gap really is? It's that stuff in your life which is monotonous to you. It's redundant. It's daily. It's lost all of its fizz. It's, it's uh, that stuff that's there every single morning, and it's tough to get up and do. It's the stuff you face for which no one writes a book about you, even though you do it day after day. And here's what we know can happen when you are in that space. Fatigue can come in, doubt, doubting God, doubting even His faithfulness because you're not feeling anything. Uh, that sense that you've lost vision, that sense that you've, um, you've lost purpose in your life, maybe even lost destiny. The feeling, another thing that happens is that feeling of, well, is this it? Is this, uh, is this my lot in life? Will this ever change? Is this ever going to change? Is this the way it is from here on out? But I have come this morning, Bethesda, dear beloved Bethesda, with a word of encouragement for you. Because this, if you are in that position, in that place, this is exactly where God steps in. For what we see here 
is that God takes Abraham raising Ishmael, the worst chapter of Abraham's life, the worst season of his life. And while raising that boy, God looked upon him and said, you've been faithful to do the right thing. Therefore, now I'm going to take you into the greatest chapter of your life. You are moving into the greatest season of your life, Abraham. And you're going to know me in a way that you have never known me before because I am God Almighty. First time it was mentioned in Scripture. I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. I'm revealing myself to you. He was taking Abraham from glory to glory, from grace to grace, from revelation to revelation, saying, I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai, the one who is capable of nourishing you, providing all that you have need of. You're going to see me in a way, you're going to see me in a glory that you've not seen before. And this change is going to be so profound in you that I'm going to change your name. You will not even be the same person. But God, what did, what, what did I do? You were faithful. You were faithful. You were faithful when no one was watching. You were faithful when no one else could see what you were doing. You were faithful when no one was there to applaud you and give you the attaboy that you would, you would probably like to have had. You know what, Bethesda? Your Christianity matters on Monday. It matters on Tuesday. It matters, teachers, when you walk into that school where some of those kids are a challenge. It matters, you administrative assistants, when you have to get coffee for somebody that, or you have to serve them somehow and you'd really rather not. But you do it with a good attitude. It matters, those of you who are janitors, when you have to walk into a room that you've cleaned hundreds of times and you have to clean it again, but you do it well. You do it with excellence because you do it under the Lord. God sees that and He honors that. And I'm just saying that I know that many of us in this house today feel like you are caught in that space between chapter 16 and 17. But my message to you this morning is simply this. Stay faithful because the next step is going to be the greatest chapter of your life simply because God honors faithfulness. Say that with me. Stand with me, please, this morning. Could you just lift your hands to the Lord and let me, let me just pray over us today. God, you see us right where we are. <clears throat> Some of us are in a thriving season of our lives. Bless the Lord. Thankful for those. Other folks in the room here today are barely hanging on. Some of us are caught between chapter 16 and 17, wondering why we're in caught in this mundane season of our life. But here's what we can have the assurance of today. You see us. Your eye is upon us. You've not forsaken us. You've not left us alone. Regardless what we feel or what we see, you are there because your promise is there. Therefore, let us be found faithful in your sight. Let us continue to do the things you've called us to do. Let us continue to be obedient to your word. Let us do it with a good attitude unto you because we are doing it unto you. Lord, we recognize we need your help. We need your strength. We need your grace. And we ask for it all today because we know that we're talking to the one who is faithful. We ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the church said, amen. Come on, lift a hallelujah unto the Lord today. Would you do it?